It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the impact and fallout of the missile and drone strikes across Ukraine, and we analyze the strategy of Volodymyr Zelensky in the weeks and months ahead. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of January, one year and 313 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by summing up the latest news from Ukraine. Let's start in Kharkiv, a school in the northeastern Ukrainian city partially collapsed on Tuesday evening after the massive missile and drone strikes across Ukraine at the beginning of the week. A 10-metre crater was left at the scene and the windows of three nearby homes were smashed. Some reports suggest the strike was conducted using S-300 surface-to-air missiles. Down in Zaporizhia, two civilians have been killed by shelling as Russia launched a wave of artillery drone and missile strikes on the partially occupied southern province. Ballistic missile strikes were expected today and residents have been urged to head to air raid shelters. Yuri Malashko, the region's military governor, said a 54-year-old man and a 63-year-old woman died this morning when the village of Plavny was shelled. Another woman, 76 years old, was also injured in the attacks. In Kherson, an elderly Ukrainian man has died after Russian shelling collapsed his home on top of him. The man from the village of Sadovi in Kherson was trapped under rubble following an artillery bombardment shortly after 11am local time. That's 8am GMT. This comes from the governor, Alexandra Pokudin. Rescuers have recovered the man's body from the rubble, he added. In response, Ukraine launched missile and drone attacks on occupied Crimea and the Russian border city of Belgorod overnight. Explosions were heard in the Crimean port city of Sevastopol after what one Russian blogger said was a salvo of British-supplied Storm Shadow missiles. And Moscow-appointed local official Mikhail Razvozhev said a missile had been intercepted and that there were no casualties or damage. A number of drones and 12 missiles were also shot down over Belgorod by anti-air defences, Russia's defence ministry and governor, Vakislav Gladkov, said. The border city, uh, situated around 20-30 miles from Ukraine's northeastern border, was also, we think, targeted in attacks on Saturday and Tuesday. Pulling back then from the news and the, the consequences of these strikes, there's been an interesting update from the British Ministry of Defence. They say that Russia, in their view, has used up a, quote, significant proportion, end quote, of its missile stockpile in its attacks on Ukrainian cities over the last week. In its latest defence intelligence briefing, the MOD said the attacks have, quote, primarily targeted, end quote, Ukraine's defence industry. They say, this contrasts with its major attacks last winter, which prioritised striking Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Russia appeared set to restart this campaign by hitting energy sites in early December 2023. 
these new operations, so they're talking about the strikes here in the past few days, suggest at least a temporary change of approach in Russia's use of long-range strikes. Russian planners, they say, almost certainly recognise the growing importance of relative defence industrial capacity as they prepare for a long war. Well, let's look at some more reaction to these strikes yesterday. Ukraine's Prosecutor General, Andrei Kostin, has said that uh, Russia's attacks were barbaric war crimes and a blatant act of terrorism. He wrote on X, formerly Twitter, prosecutors and investigators are documenting these barbaric war crimes. Residential buildings, gas pipelines, energy facilities in the Kyiv, Kharkiv and Kherson regions, as well as the capital, have been damaged. Russia's war on civilians is a blatant act of terrorism. This is a stark reminder to the world only decisive action can stop terrorists from repeating their atrocities. Ukraine's defence minister has accused Moscow of deliberately targeting residential areas. Uh, this is after Russia hit the country with almost 100 missiles, killing at least five people. Rustem Umerov said on social media, the terrorist state is deliberately targeting critical infrastructure and residential neighbourhoods with, very, with a very dangerous attack that killed and injured innocent people. Backing them up, today NATO has put out a statement saying Vladimir Putin's wave of airstrikes on Ukrainian cities will not succeed in breaking Ukraine's resilience. Uh, In a statement to Polish radio station RMF.FM, they said NATO strongly condemns Russia's missile and drone attacks on Ukrainian civilians, cities and towns. This is yet another proof of Putin's attempt to break Ukraine's resilience. He will not succeed. The alliance also added that it would stand with Kyiv as long as it takes. Just quickly, before we go to Joe Barnes then, who's been looking at the impact of these strikes, a few updates on some frontline changes, or rather marginal. This all comes from the Institute for the Study of War. They say that Russian forces recently made marginal territorial gains southwest of Svatove and northwest Krimina. Uh, they also made conver- confirmed advances northwest and southwest of Bakhmut. Geolocated footage published on January the 1st and 2nd indicates that Russian forces advanced on the northern and eastern outskirts of Budanivka. This is northwest of Bakhmut. Going to Avdivka, Russian forces also made a confirmed advance northwest of Avdivka as positional engagements continued on January the 1st and 2nd. Going down the line then, uh, they say Russian and Ukrainian forces continued positional fighting in the Donetsk-Zaporizhia Oblast border area on January the 1st and 2nd, but there were no confirmed changes to the front lines. And finally, going to that uh, Ukrainian incursion on the east, that's the left bank of Kherson Oblast, fighting has continued there, but again, there's no confirmed changes to the front line in this area. They do say, though, that Ukrainian forces repelled a slightly increased number of Russian ground attacks near the town of Krinky. That's south west of Herson City on January the 1st. So that's the news and updates. Joe Barnes, you've been looking at several things that it would be great to hear your thoughts on. First of, I mean, first of all, how did the Russians manage to do these? How did they conduct these huge strikes? And what's the impact been? Yeah, hi folks, and Happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, so normally when these sort of long-range strikes occur, we, in the days after we'll hear from sort of Ukraine's SBU security services saying, oh, we've rounded up a load of collaborators who are helping Russian forces identify targets. But what we found out now is Russia is hacking security surveillance cameras in Kyiv and using them to record the city's air defences at work and to locate critical infrastructure. So it's a new technique. So um, according to reports, So Russian special services obtained remote access to the control the cameras and change the viewing angles and connect them to YouTube. 
So Ukraine's SBU said it has now dismantled the cameras in the Ukrainian capital. One of the devices was located on the balcony of an apartment building and reportedly used by residents to monitor the surrounding area. The other camera was installed by residents in one Kiev residential of one of Kiev's residential complexes to monitor its parking lot. So these aren't the city's cameras, but they are cameras that we all, we all use them in our homes. How many people have ring doorbells these days or cameras to monitor your pets while you're at, at work or whatever? It's those ones, and they're connected to the internet, and they're actually quite easy to get a hold of and get get into. They're open systems. They're, they're designed for ease of use rather than security. So it's quite interesting to see that Russia is looking at targeting these systems in a bid to get a look at where Ukraine's air defences are. So you'll you'll, you'll also recount after many of these long-range missile strikes, people will post these like sort of spectacular videos of Patriot missile systems firing into the air at sort of a great rate of knots intercepting various missiles. Actually, Ukraine doesn't want that posted and banded around the internet because that helps reveal how their systems work and it basically gives you Russia easy intelligence. Yeah, so just, yeah, just an interesting look at how that has done. Then look, let's look at the impact on energy. So after um, yesterday's strikes, the CEO of Ukraine's national energy company claimed that the attacks failed to pose a critical threat to the country's power system, despite causing some damage to the grid. So Vladimir Kudovsky, He's the CEO of Ukraine Energo, the energy company, basically. He said, and I quote, we have promptly fixed the operation of the necessary equipment within just a few hours, and most customers in Kiev and the surrounding areas have uninterrupted power supplies. The city's water supply systems have also been resumed. Um, so, yeah, look, he did acknowledge there had been some interruptions to the power supplies. Um, I think it was around just short of 300,000 people were left without power after the strikes in the early hours of yesterday morning. But what this is interesting to say is, and and I I will touch upon this in my final thoughts a little bit more, but these guys are seeming to contrast what the Brits are saying in saying that Russia is targeting military capacities, unless what is actually happening is Russia is targeting energy facilities in the hope of, one, freezing Ukrainians in submission during the cold winter months, as they did last winter, and potentially trying to disrupt factories that are building Ukrainian drones and missiles. So interesting. Yeah. And as I said, DTEC, one of the big energy providers, said electricity had been restored to around 260,000 residents in Kyiv. The EU's ambassador in Kyiv has called for, and this is now, let's look at what people are saying in response to these strikes. Um, so the EU's ambassador in Kyiv, so Katerina Maranova, um, has basically said that Ukraine needs more support in the wake of these attacks. She has said, Ukraine has fallen victim to another savage Russian attack today. Capital Kiev and Kharkiv pummeled by Russian missiles and drones, civilians injured and killed, infrastructure destroyed. Ukraine needs more support now to save lives. Russia will be held accountable. So if you, if you remember, Russia will be held accountable is the same phrase that uh, Vladimir Zelensky used yesterday in the wake of those attacks. And yes, where has this sort of landed us? What is Ukraine asking for? So I um, so I won't go too much into the piece that we wrote. I wrote yesterday for today's paper on the attacks, but I spoke to Kira Rudik, who is the MP, whose house was partially destroyed and, and sort of left in rubble, as she described it, in the attacks yesterday. And so I spoke to her and I was like, what does Ukraine need? And she said, look, we need a few things. 
First, she said, we need more air defence systems and ammunition. She said, look, the rate of these Russian attacks is incredible. We are burning through these. We're burning through our sort of Patriot missiles, NASAM missiles, various other things, IRST, SAMT, all the Western systems. We are going through these missiles at a rate of knots and we need resupplying. She said F-16 fighter jets can play a really important intercept role. So she encouraged for those to be accelerated and get more F-16s into Ukraine's skies quicker than previously expected. She said, like, yep, she's not obviously a military person, but she said, look, these things have capabilities that can blow missiles out the sky, they can take drones out, etc., etc., and used in what she said was the next priority, priority C, was Ukraine needs more long-range weapons, basically because at the moment Russia can lob vast volleys of missiles and drones into Ukrainian territory largely unanswered. Ukraine is trying to retaliate as such, but Russia does have the edge on those weapons. And then the other point she made, and I think it's a really important one, we've, I've reported on it quite extensively, and there are, there's more stories to be told about this and something I'm looking at at the moment, is she said the West has to do better at cutting Russia's supply of Western computer chips components because the missiles and drones that they are building and firing at Ukraine are still being found with chips that have been purchased after the sanctions, after the war in February 2022 had started. So yeah, it's really important, she was saying, that we need to cut the suppliers of that. And yet, let's go back to the international reaction um, and what people are saying. So the Baltic states, some of Ukraine's most ardent European allies, so the leaders of Latvia and Lithuania, have demanded the West send more air anti-air weapons to Ukraine, stop further Russian air raids. Exactly what Kira Rudik was saying, so Ukrainians do wonders with the air defence the West has provided, but they need more Lithuanian President Gatis Nuseda wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter. Air defence systems to Ukraine now. Edgar Rinkovics, who is the president of Latvia, added, another set of brutal Russian airstrikes against Kyiv this morning, talking about yesterday's strikes, innocent civilians again being the victims of Russian terrorism. Ukrainian air defence works well, but Ukraine must get more help. New Year's celebrations are over and the West must get serious and act now. Uh, yeah, so quite interesting. And this is what the Poles had to say to um, Radoslaw Savorski, who's the new Polish foreign minister. He said the West needs to send long-range missiles to Ukraine and tighten sanctions against Russia. So maybe he's been having conversations with Kira Rudik. So Radoslaw Savorski said we should respond to the latest onslaught on Ukraine in language that Putin understands by tightening sanctions so he cannot make new weapons with smuggled components and by giving Kyiv long-range missiles that enable it to take out launch sites and command centres. So, yep, that's exactly what they need, and it's quite clear that everyone is on the same page. Um, and then, finally, from me, the French weapons donations to Ukraine will be gradually replaced by aid for its domestic arms industry, France's ambassador to Kyiv has said. Uh, so, French support for the supply of military equipment is of course continuing and that's from Gail Vassier and she'd said told that to France Info it will gradually change its nature as the goal is to produce more weapons in Ukraine rather than proceeding solely through donations or purchases so what's interesting is yes France has seemingly dried up um, in terms of donations to Ukraine but like Britain its major French defence industry industrial players have been having meetings in Kyiv 
and speaking to people and looking, can we set up factories domestically or maybe just the other side of the border to allow Ukraine to build these things under license, whether it be the ammunition, so artillery ammunition, so the French make a really good GPS-guided shell for 155mm artillery. Is it the, the, the Caesar artillery system or, or is it actually the smaller things that the French could also help produce? And I will stop there and hand it over to Francis. Thank you very much, Joe. It's good to have you back. Happy New Year. Francis, Happy New Year to you too. We haven't heard from you for quite a few days. Um, do you want to give us your take, your thoughts on what you've seen in the war in Ukraine over the past few weeks? Well, thanks, David. Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners who are joining us again. It's good to be back. Broad brush, both sides evidently sought to show their strength over the festive period. Russia with those fierce bombardments that you've just been talking about and Ukraine with its really important strikes on the Black Sea fleet. Now, this time last year, I tried to summarise the strategic picture as we opened the new year. And I intend to do so again over the coming days. But I think it's more important that we understand the respective positions of the core participants, namely President Zelensky and Putin, at the dawn of 2024. And in that vein, I'll start by summarising the first major interview Zelensky has given this year in The Economist. And it paints a picture of a man changed, a man who's angry, not about the supposed successes of his enemies, he sees none, nor even about his own army's seeming lack of progress on the battlefield, but rather by the wobbles of some of his allies, as well as the detachment among some of his compatriots. And he wants the world to know about it. So the magazine writes that he has shed the lightness and humour that characterised earlier meetings with him. It quotes him as saying that the West has lost a sense of urgency and many Ukrainians a sense of existential threat, and that he's now trying to rekindle both. Now, I find his admission regarding the latter interesting. It's indicative of Ukraine's successes over the past two years, that many Ukrainians do not feel the existence of their country as a whole is imperiled. And yet, of course, that does come with serious political consequences, as we were reflecting on at the end of last year. But I digress. What he says is maybe we did not succeed in 2023 as the world wanted. Maybe not everything is as fast as some people imagined. But the idea that Putin is winning is no more than a feeling. Russian forces are still being slaughtered in places like Avdika from where I've just returned. And then he goes on. He emphasises that Putin's army failed to take a single large city in 2023, whereas Ukraine managed to break through Russia's blockade of the Black Sea, as I just referenced, and is now shipping millions of tonnes of grain using a new route that hugs Ukraine's southern coast. He says that's a huge result. Now, it is worth remembering that British intelligence estimates Russia has suffered more than 500,000 casualties killed and wounded over the past two years and that despite its vast advantage in firepower its net territorial gain is around 100 square miles by late fall and that was far from what anyone would have predicted a mobilized Russia would have been capable of prior to this war so it is worth just remembering that in what is I think still quite a pessimistic moment in the way that people are talking about the war. But central to Zelensky's argument is that by supporting Ukraine, Europe is protecting itself from Russian aggression. Of course, this has been a line he's consistently been saying for some time. Giving us money or giving us weapons, you support yourself. You save your children, not ours. 
If Russia is allowed to take Ukrainian children, they will take other children. If Russia violates the rights of Ukrainians, it will violate the rights in the world. If Ukraine loses, Putin will bring his wars closer to the West. Putin feels weakness like an animal because he is an animal. He senses blood. He senses his strength. And he will eat you for dinner with all of your EU, NATO, freedom and democracy. So he doesn't mince his words, suffice to say. Now, on the military sphere, the economist says that Zelensky gave little away about what he believes Ukraine can achieve in 2024, saying that the leaks before last year's summer counteroffensive helped Russia prepare its defences. But if he has a message, it's that Crimea and the connected battle in the Black Sea will become the war's centre of gravity. So isolating Crimea, which of course was illegally annexed back in 2014, and degrading Russia's military capabilities there is, to quote him, extremely important because it is the way for us to reduce the number of attacks from that region. But he then goes on to stress that the speed of any success will depend on the military assistance he gets from Western partners. Now, he's asked, of course, for the Taurus, that German-made long-range stealth cruise missile with the ability to explode deep inside a target. And he emphasised that would enable Ukraine to destroy that $4 billion Kirsch bridge, in effect isolating the Crimea Peninsula from Russia. Russia has to know that for us, this is a military object. So he is not in any way talking down the prospects of Crimea being a key element in this war. Far from it. It seems that it remains a key target for them. Now, he's less open about his goals in the east and the south. He states still that the strategic ambition is to restore Ukraine to its original borders, but that so that has not changed. But he's no longer setting timelines and making no promises as how much territory Ukraine can deoccupy this year. He says his immediate task in the land war is to defend the east, to save the very important cities of Ukraine in the east and the south, namely Kharkiv, Dnipro, Zaporizhia, Herzon and Mykolaiv, and protect the country's critical infrastructure, which is interesting given what Joe was just reflecting on there, given these bombardments. Now, as for suggestions around negotiations, In the interview, Zelensky says he does not detect any fundamental steps forward to the peace from Russia. Now, I don't think that should come as any surprise, as the Ukrainians evidently understand far better than many in the West the political ramifications of these discussions about negotiations. And to quote from San Green of the Russia Institute of King's College London, He's a very astute commentator on the war. The idea that Moscow wants peace now is fundamentally flawed. As he writes, the Kremlin does not want peace for the simple reason that peace would undermine the Kremlin's domestic power. This war has reshaped every aspect of Russian political life and much of Russian social and economic life to the benefit of Putin. The war has submerged the pre-war foundations of which Putin's power was built, the material bargain between the Kremlin, the elites and the masses, to such an extent that the Kremlin cannot be sure whether those foundations would still hold in peacetime. He needs, in short, existential geopolitical confrontation to last. Drafting the West into a negotiating process, and let's be clear, it's the West he wants to talk to, not Kiev, thus serves an obvious purpose. It reduces the Western appetite for fighting and puts the Kremlin in control of escalation. 
Putin knows that if talks begin, the West will want to see them succeed and will likely be loath to do anything that might undermine that success, like providing new weapons systems to Ukraine or to fast track NATO membership. That alone is enough for Putin to talk. The problem is this, he says. For the West, negotiations are a means of ending the war. For Russia, they are a means of winning it. Putin recognises this and is eager to exploit it. None of this is to say that the war will not eventually end with negotiations. All wars end with negotiations, even those negotiations preceded by resounding military victories. But not all negotiations end wars. So I think that's helpful in this context around discussions that have been renewed about negotiations because, and the vital point being, he's right to stress that if those were allowed to begin, that it would de-incentivize many Western governments to provide Ukraine with key military support. So the situation is extremely precarious. And I agree with the remarks of the historian Nal Ferguson a couple of days ago when he said, quote, future historians will marvel at all of this. It will seem obvious by 2033, if not sooner, that the West faced a well-coordinated challenge from China, Russia, Iran and North Korea in the early 2020s. The first move was the invasion of Ukraine. The second was the war of Iran's proxies against Israel. The third will most likely be a Chinese challenge to American primacy in the Indo-Pacific. Perhaps, if Xi Jinping is bold, a blockade of Taiwan. The fate of Ukraine, of Israel and Taiwan too, hangs in the balance. The age of Pax Americana is fading. Now on that reading, David, 2024 is set to be a pivotal year in the world order that may well shape the coming years and decades, perhaps even the coming century. But as I say, I intend to reflect more on that over the coming days as there's just so much to say about it. Well, thank you so much, Francis. It's great to hear your thoughts and um, great to have you back as well. Just briefly then, a couple of other developments I know you wanted to touch on. What's caught your eye today? Certainly. Well, a row has broken out after Turkey refused to allow Royal Navy mine hunters donated to Ukraine to pass through its waters, blocking them from reaching the Black Sea. Now, these two ships were pledged back in December to Kyiv to help its navy in the battle against Russia, suffice to say. But on Tuesday, Erdogan said the transfer would violate the 1936 Montreux Convention, which stops warships passing through its Bosphorus and Gallipoli Straits during conflict. Those straits are the only sea route to the Black Sea. And Turkey insists that it has implemented that ban impartially since the war in Ukraine started. So a little bit more context on what the ships were going to be doing. They were the leading parts of this new naval coalition formed with Norway to strengthen Ukraine's capabilities in the Black Sea, which, of course, is filled with mines. And the Maritime Capability Coalition aimed to counter the threat of those explosives to help restore Ukraine's grain exports and make importing supplies easier. I don't think Turkey's decision here should come as a huge shock. That convention is what Turkey has basically been able to cite whenever it refuses help to Russia as well as Ukraine. It is part of their diplomatic toolkit for being able to play essentially both East and West and position itself as between both. But nevertheless, 
I mention it because it is a row this morning. There are a lot of people who are upset about it and the message that it sends, not least, it seems, people in the Royal Navy. But it also speaks to an increased tension within the NATO alliance more broadly about Turkey. And listeners will be familiar that there are some people within the alliance who actually believe that Turkey is more of an impediment to the unity of the NATO alliance rather than a strength. And they indeed call for Turkey to be booted out as a consequence. I don't think there's much chance of that happening, I should say, in the short or the long term, not least because of fears that they would fall into the Russian orbit by necessity and other more hostile powers. But also the fact that just I think people are willing to wait things out and see what happens in the post-Erdogan era. Nevertheless, the fact that we are even asking this question is revealing of the tensions that have been exposed within the alliance with regards to Turkey and its position. However consistent that position may be, nonetheless, it does appear that there have been many core decisions, vital decisions made in this war of which Turkey has not necessarily been the most helpful ally, not least, of course, with regard to Sweden and Finland joining a process which Turkey held up. The other story I did just want to mention is that according to several Russian language outlets, including Medusa and Fontanka, St. Petersburg police arrested at least 3,000 migrants on December 31st and January 1st. I stress this is hard to verify and I very much urge caution here. But the reports are that the men were reportedly taken to police stations whilst women and children were taken to a special detention centre. And on the 1st, military enlistment officers came to many of the detainees and offered them the option of enlisting in the Russian army as volunteers. That's coming from Nevea Gazeta Europe. And officers threatened to deport the men's families if they did not comply. Those without Russian citizenship were offered expediated naturalisation if they joined the army. And supposedly at least 1,500 people agreed to sign contracts with the Russian Defence Ministry. Though again, that number has not been confirmed. I mention this because it would speak to other accounts we've heard of this happening since the invasion began. And it would make sense for such activities to occur and to be timed when many are distracted and also given the volatile political context in Russia at the moment preceding the presidential election. It would also suggest that Russia's recruitment drive is continuing, targeting particular groups whose mobilisation will not upset the voting population. So, again, urging caution, the numbers may not be accurate, the details may not be accurate here, but nonetheless, if true, it would speak to certain patterns we have already seen. And that in itself would be an interesting story at what will be an important few weeks in the Russian domestic context around the election. And I think we should expect, by the way, for Russia to be sensitive to renewed Ukrainian strikes that could humiliate Putin in a very visual way. And what I mean by that, of course, is the sinking of ships like we saw over the New Year period, which was extremely, I think, important, happened obviously just around Christmas time in terms of perhaps shifting the narrative slightly in showing what Ukraine was still capable of. And I think we should expect similar visually and in a sense, strategically important developments, which may well embarrass Putin. But nonetheless, I still don't think we should 
expect the outcome of that election to be in doubt. But nonetheless, there is opportunity for embarrassment for Putin. And I think he will be keen to exploit that. But we'll, of course, be monitoring all of this over the weeks ahead. Thank you very much, Francis. Let's go now then to our final thoughts. Francis, you can have a bit of a breather. Joe Barnes. Oh, yeah. Well, just back on St. Francis was saying about kicking Turkey out of NATO. This has been, it's obviously been a discussion for many, many years, given its sort of activities in Syria, etc., which kind of went against NATO. But there isn't actually really a legal mechanism to do it. So for now, it's just a waiting game to get rid of Erdogan and hopefully have a more friendly Western leader in Turkey. But no, to my final thought, and to sort of look at what people inside Ukraine are saying about the British defence report this morning, which suggested that Russia was going after mainly and predominantly drone and missile production capacities, capabilities inside Ukraine. Um, So I was speaking to uh, a chap called Yuri Sack, who people might remember as a a advisor to the former defence minister, Ukraine, but he's now working for Ukraine's strategic industries minister, looking at how Ukraine can bolster its domestic defence industry. And I was like, so I messaged him and went, Yuri, what do, you, what do you think of this? And he was like, look, Joe, I only saw the destroyed residential homes, shopping malls, maternity wards, railway stations, and the high number of civilian casualties. These are the facts. Everything else is speculation. So you'd think the guy who works for the person in charge of boosting Ukraine's defence industry doesn't believe that they're really going after Russia, are really going after these targets, they're going after civilian targets still. But what it is, is quite interesting. So we could look at today, as David said, that Ukraine apparently launched attacks on an airfield in Crimea and on a ammunition dump in Belgorod. So what we are seeing is actually an escalating, if the British view is in fact correct, an escalating conflict where both sides are trying to take out each other's capacities to hit deep behind enemy lines. And that is with the front lines largely frozen as they are. So it's going to become this sort of battle of aerial endurance and who can do it the best. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out and how the West really does respond to this in the next few days and weeks. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe. That's really useful, I think, to comment on some of the stories we've been reporting, because you're right, there is, there's definitely some tension between the, uh, the MOD's account of what it thinks is happening and what some of the Ukrainians think is happening. So thanks for talking a little bit about that. I'm sure we'll be coming back to that in the future. Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. I want to end with a few reflections from several sources who've been active in Ukraine over the past fortnight or so, and what they tell us about what we might expect in the weeks and months ahead in the Ukraine political sphere and its military sphere. So one interesting insight from someone whose opinion I trust and who I was speaking to is the degree to which political unity is, if not vanished, it's certainly crumbling in ways that will have ramifications over the months ahead. Real politics, in short, has returned. So over the last year, of course, presidential office has been limiting the freedom of movement of opposition MPs abroad, which means that Western decision-makers sometimes have had imperfect information. And apparently some MPs have started to get quite angry about the restrictions that have been placed on them. And that is helping to feed some of the tensions prevalent within the Ukrainian political context. Not only that, of course, it is worth reflecting on the fact that because there will not be those presidential elections that were originally would have been scheduled for March, which are no longer taking place because of the war, that one of the 
pressure valves, as it were, that would have been in play will not be in play over the next few months. And that inevitably will lead to, I think, some tensions, particularly from those who are Zelensky critics, not least, of course, um, uh, Mr Klitschko and others who have already vocalised themselves in ways perhaps they wouldn't have felt politically able to do it so several months ago. Of course, another tension prevalent apparently very strongly when one is speaking to people high up in Ukraine is the Zeluzhny Zelensky tension. And indeed, some are predicting that Zeluzhny may well be sacked in the months ahead, which of course would have quite significant ramifications given that he has been the military commander in chief, one that was very popular amongst many of the soldiers and indeed is well respected for his openness on the world stage and his articulacy on matters of war. But we know there are tensions and those in the know seem to say and suggest that there is an attempt perhaps to slowly push Zeluzhny out, whether he falls on his sword or whether he is eventually sacked. But again, that's something I think we should be sensitive to in the weeks, months ahead. There is apparently also an increased frustration about perhaps a lack of a realistic approach to the war last year from within Zelensky's office. As we've talked about many times, I think there is a case that Ukraine was a victim of its own success, that because it had had such triumphs last year with some of those counteroffensives that people expected to see similar in 2023. So when I said last year, I meant 2022. How times are moving, God. But yes, uh, so this idea that more should have been done to ensure that if progress was not as substantial that that would not come across as as it has in some theatres that Ukraine is losing the war in some way. And that, again, will have perhaps ramifications on the Ukrainian political scene. In terms of public opinion, though, it still remains incredibly resilient and in a way that I think many people misunderstand about Ukraine is that many, the vast majority of people are very much determined to continue fighting come what may. They know that this is a existential fight for their future. And there have been some evidences of people being more in favour of some kind of peace beginning, but that really things remain pretty solid when one looks at the polling data and that so perhaps the way of understanding it is society is resilient, but there are some fragilities that can't hold on endlessly. And then just lastly, a few reflections, I think, on the economic model. We've talked extensively last year about how reliant Ukraine is on Western financial support and it's as important, arguably, as military. I think to some degree we've taken for granted just how much money has been given to keep the Ukrainian economy afloat. And of course, that will come with challenges if the support for Ukraine were to wane in the coming months. I'm not saying it will. I think there might well be other factors that come into play that mean there is an increase, but that's a discussion for another day. But nonetheless, I think it is important to remember how important that economic support is. And of course, the economic models will be in flux as people raise questions about what a future Ukraine will look like if some of these territories are lost permanently. 
They may well not be, but nonetheless, these are questions that will have an impact on the post-war economy and how people are thinking about Ukraine's future and indeed thinking about investment, which, again, is also relevant. Some people have been quite critical about the way that the president's office has governed and it hasn't necessarily given the economic assurances that many Western investors would want. And I think that we should also expect to see movement not only on the corruption front and battling corruption, but also on laying the foundations for economic growth in Ukraine that will allow that investment to continue. So just a few reflections, David, on some of the themes, I think, in the Ukraine domestic sphere that we may well be monitoring more closely in the coming weeks than perhaps we were at the end of 2023. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 